And that is, uh, that is Matthew. It says John, but that's my favorite passage in the Bible, John 13 through 17. I absolutely love that. Maybe it just creeped out, but it is Matthew. And that is the Riley Festival, named after James Wickham Riley, who passed away in 1916. If you, that's 40 and 9 right there, and that's all the food vendors. And if you take a hard left, you'll find the best vendor there, Barbecue and Fools. And I ate 1% of his, I ate 1% of his bratwurst last year at the Riley Festival. He told me how many he had, and I figured out how many I ate, and that's what happens the first full weekend in the fall. But in the, in this very crowd is my theme today. In this very crowd is the theme where we are. And I want to pause for a second. I am, uh, authentically Christian, unapologetically friends or Quaker. I've made a lot of humorous, humorisms about that. But in crowds, sometimes we lose our senses. We Even on Sabbath, Sunday, we lose our sense of pace. And The music has been glorious today. Thank you. Love good worship music. Sets a tone. But I want to pause and settle down on what we want to hear from God. And then we're going to move on through the text. And my goal is that we gain a new perspective of this. I might even pray with words. But let's bow our heads. Our Father, we thank you. No one uh, can see the word of God clearly without understanding the power of the Holy Spirit. Open up our minds and our hearts. Guide our thoughts. Clear us of a distraction that probably is present in our life today. And may we leave here with the truism that makes us closer drawn to you. May we not be lost in the crowd and may we learn that in this very crowd of the church today, the secondary crowd that might hear this later, that God, you are, you are in our midst and we ask your guidance. We pray all these things in the sound, powerful and glorious name of Christ. Amen. Thank you very much. And I have a name tag and I have three first names and only two of them are on this name tag. Somebody got a discount. That's awesome. Marcus Dennis. So we could share this name tag with probably a couple other people here. It's wonderful to see part of the team I serve on. Uh, Randy and Susan Kirkpatrick Dennis. Thank you. Good to see you. They could borrow quite a bit of that name tag. Same last name. <laughs> Just had to put a different one on the front. And, and Cheryl Gray and the Hunts are a blessing to me uh, serving in Hancock County to kind of grow the kingdom of God on Saturday. I want to take you to uh, a thought here in, from a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. That'll throw you off. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And where's the gospel according to Jesus? Well, there is only one gospel, you know. Maybe we'll make this a classroom and a couple applications and we'll go home like Dr. Hunt likes to talk about. We do need more teaching in the scriptures. We do want a learned audience. We want a learned following. There is one gospel. And in the New Testament, we have four accounts, correct? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've hit on a couple of them. If you're really Pauline and you're thinking the Apostle Paul, you might say, well, is there another gospel? Paul really throws you off there when he says the gospel of God in Romans 1. So there's one gospel. There's four accounts in the New Testament. Paul says it's the gospel of God. But either way, there's one God and we have one Bible and we have one story. And we're so thankful for the accounts. I want to go to a text that's from a book actually called The Gospel According to Jesus. It's worth reading. It's by John MacArthur. 
What is needed is a complete re-examination of the gospel. We must go back to the basics of all New Testament teachings about salvation and the gospel proclaimed by Jesus Christ. I think you'll be surprised to find out how radically different the message of Christ is from what you might have learned growing up or in a personal evangelism seminar. Now, I almost would word it differently. Marcel Proust once said that the real voyage of discovery, it consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. It's worth noting. We often look for newness in new people, new staff, new zip codes, new marketplace, wherever we're headed. But so many times in our spiritual journey, newness happens when we gain a new perspective not when we're in a new place. Hence, we're looking for new eyes at a passage you probably have read so many times in the book of Matthew. Now, the backstory is, I hope you read the backstory that John read to us. This was Jesus Christ's longest day, I believe, in all of his ministry. This is mirrored in several other of the accounts. It was an enormously long day. He had come off the water. He had lost a peer. He had lost a relative. There was also a death threat. Herod had tried his very best to see Jesus the same way he had seen John, and that had a very grim outcome. It didn't work well. Now, when I wrote this for a text way long ago in my life, I reviewed this and I called this a little boy's lunch. 27 years later, I've rewritten a manuscript and I've called it In This Very Crowd. I want to pose a question to you. What did Jesus Christ know that enabled him to do what he did? What did Jesus know in his head, in his heart, and by his life that enabled him to do all that he did? I think it's worth asking. One, I believe he knew the value of people. I think when we think about shepherding and ministry and serving people like you do so capably here, We see a lot of people. When you're open to everybody, you're open to everyone. And sometimes that's a long day. But in this day, Jesus Christ had an enormously long day. He knew the value of people. He also knew that human beings have a treasure. They have value in them. And people also bring stress into our lives. Maybe you know that already. Most of the stressors we have come through some of our relationships But people bring that. Jesus left the sea. It was a difficult experience on water. It was more difficult on land. Keep in mind all that we've already known about this. Verse 14 is where we begin the idea of this chapter. God's goodness is based on what? What is the goodness of God based on? Maybe that He's good to you. Maybe He's good to me. Maybe we have a positive experience. I contend that the goodness of God is based on nothing other than God is good and we need to just accept that. God is a good God. He wants good things for us and He wants wonderful outcomes if we're willing to work with Him. Moving on through verse 14, I wonder if anyone asked Jesus how He was doing. The beheading of a cousin who really was the forerunner of everything that happened in his life, so many meaningful things, and there He's had an epic loss 
The disciples dump on him about this loss and he turns around and spoiler alert, there's 20,000 people. Notice that he was trying to get away from the crowd when they followed him on foot. That's the Sea of Galilee. What's the biblical precedent that we have to help people that have no desire to become Christians? There are 213 questions in the New Testament. You probably think I'm asking you all of them today, but I'm not. What's the biblical precedent to help someone who does not wish or seek to become a Christian? One word, God. That's it. We don't know. I don't know if you know what a piranha hour is or not, but it's my euphemism for that hour in the day when absolutely everyone would like a piece of my life. Now, I've been to Dr. John Hunt's vet clinic with a critter or two, top of the morning, and I feel like I just need to have a whistle and direct animals and critters back and forth. It's the piranha hour over there at the Heritage Vet Clinic. You could get bitten or kicked or who knows what's going to happen over there. But we have these hours in our life where everybody wants a piece of us. Maybe it's right when you come home from work and that's when men just love to hear what happened all day. That's a joke that strikes you. I have a good friend that he and his wife are professors and they're dear to me. And uh, Tim is his name and he loves his lovely wife, Carol. But he provides an hour worth of marketplace feedback every day. And then when the hour arrives at the conclusion, he said, you know, I love you very much. And that's all we probably can handle about my workstation and yours. I mean, it's a tough world we live in. That's the piranha hour in Christ's life. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. Then we get to verse 15, which is a very difficult thing to begin to absorb. And when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed the sick. This is where Jesus had biblical compassion. He took his perspective and looked through the world through their lenses and he healed people. I have never healed anybody. I don't know what it's like to heal anybody. I know what it's like to pray for someone and have them healed. I know what it's like to have a brother 13 years my age with a a grim report with a rare form of cancer that hardly anyone ever survives and 189 days in the hospital and, and removed from all systems and 24 hours later that he's not going to be here any longer and with a twin brother and a brother that close to me we're almost like just knotted up together like that and then to... Hear my eight-year-old nephew say, Dad, you can't die. We need you. Mom's not that tough. She just acts tough. We have laundry piles that are so big at home, Dad, you wouldn't believe it. And if you die, who's going to raise me? And it cracked my brother's lip. We'd shared the tour for 189 days to be with him at Emory University Hospital and and then he was down to everything that could be done. And I saw the, my friend, the Jewish physician, come in. He was still wearing his yarmulke from the day. And he watched the speech. And he said, Dad, I finally caught the fish. They live on a lake. What fish? The big fish. And he's like, you, you caught the fish. Yeah, and here I'm watching this narrative happen between my brother and then his eight-year-old son. And he's, he's pulling on my brother not to die. Everything medically could be done. Almost a deck of million, millions and a ten million and saving his body. It was, they were done with him. And then he said, Dad, Dad said, what did you put? The filet, the fish? He's like, 
no dad it's in the jet tub in the basement and i'm feeding it bread till you get home <laughs> don't tell mom <laughs> and then my brother's lip cracked he'd been feeding it bread my my family wanted to know where all the bread was going he was feeding it to the fish in the jet tub and downstairs and and then he he got up in bed with him that's about it for me i can handle a lot and uh Three days later, they ran him through some tests. Great things were happening. This is palliative care right here, folks. This is the checkout. This is the lobby of the checkout hotel, and his bags are packed. Thirteen years later, he's alive. I know that doctor. You get to know a doctor like that. And he jogs a little or waddles like me. We're so old. (laughs) He said to me jogging one day, I didn't save your brother's life. I didn't even come close. I did my part. His son saved his life. When he told him how valuable he was to that family and forced him to fight for his life, I didn't encourage your brother to fight for his life. I tried to heal his body, but boy, I prayed like that. That was my family's piranha hour. But think about Jesus just walking up and ruining the first century medical industry with all these incredibly difficult maladies and all of a sudden they're healed. Can you imagine that? Being a doctor in the first century, you've got a patient coming to see you the next day. He walks in walking brilliantly and he was limb challenged. You have somebody going to see with sight issues and all of a sudden Christ was there and they could see brilliantly. Christ would do all these miracles. I want to warn us about miracles for a second. One, God can do a miracle anytime He wants to. I'd strongly suggest C.S. Lewis' book, Miracles. It's a wonderful work. But when we find a miracle in a story like this, often it's like a neon blinking sign. It's a miracle. It's huge and it takes our attention and that becomes the sermon And then you've heard it so many times, that's not the point of this message today. I just want you to know that in this story, Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he did what nobody else could do. Let's just call that a miracle. What if we decide not to focus on the miracle? What if we keep going? Maybe that wasn't the point of the story at all. So let's keep going. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is the remote place. And it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. I've been in Israel. You don't want to be in those places when the sun's setting. Difficult patch, probably close to the Sea of Galilee, gnarly, tough, tough. And here's the response. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, This is the day we're having already. Jesus is having an incredible day. Following this, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. And they answered. And then he said, bring them here to me. And then he directed them, the people to sit down on the grass. That's where our story is today. That, I believe, is the story in this narrative. I don't believe it's the miracle. You come to a position in your life where if God gives you a miracle, you give Him the credit for that miracle. It's God and God alone. My definition of a miracle is God did what nobody else could do in your life. That's it. If God didn't do it, it would not have happened. 
That is a miracle. Now let's talk about the narrative of this powerful story. Here we have the disciples telling the people to go away. And then Jesus says, we have another solution. And I contend that this is very much almost like our church today. Where's the church in the story that we're talking about? The disciples. They were representative of the church. Anytime you follow the disciples in the New Testament, that's pretty much exactly the first century church. I contend that the 21st century church is very similar in the fact that we see masses of people in this crowd, like we're mentioning here, in this very crowd here today, or the secondary crowd, and yet we send them away. Why? Their needs are too high. We don't know how to meet their need. We don't know what their need is. We don't know how we could fulfill what they needed to be done in their life. We overstate our poverty and we understate God's provisions. That's exactly what the disciples did. They had overstated their poverty. Jesus had had a very long day without looking about God's provision for their life. This is the epic turning point. Verse 18. It's when Jesus called them to what? Then I've opened this again. I want to draw this out. Verse 18. What did He say to them? Bring them here to the church. Bring them here to practical compassion. Bring them here to social justice. Bring them here to service to others. Bring them here to food. Keep going. You know the rhetorical question. Bring them here to me. The miracle blinking neon sign of 20,000 people being fed has blinded us from the true story in this narrative. The church of Jesus Christ is called to bring people to Christ. That is our duty. What God does after we bring them to Christ is God's business, not ours. And we see masses of people. And I had the joy of serving on the board of directors of the Riley Festival. And we could see 100,000 people at a four-day festival. A lot going on. A lot of people. And I oversaw all the volunteers. And at one point, I oversaw all the corporate sponsors. At one point, I, I won't tell you how many hats I had. But that's a lot of folks you're open to. I feel the same way for the church. We experience a piranha hour. And then all of a sudden we, we decide that we're going to send the people away. Why? We can't meet their need. How do you know that? How do you know you can't meet their need if you bring them to Jesus? We have a place for the down and out. You know that, right? The church of Jesus Christ specializes in helping the down and out. And that's not a pejorative. I'm just trying to keep it simple and real. We have some places for the middle and out, right? We are so rare at serving the up and out, it's almost a bias. Boy, if you have succeeded, you won't have any struggles. There won't be any challenges. Somebody could open a church up for the up and out because we can feed you, we'll clothe you, we'll wrap our arms around you. But if God has uniquely blessed your life with a gift or a challenge or daily struggles aren't your struggle, boy, there's just that, wow. How do we meet their need? They've got it. I'll tell you how. Jesus meets the need of the heart. Up and out, middle and out, way up and out, regardless. And all the rest is a detail. 
That's the church today. After loving the church and serving the church, I contend that we go back to Jesus here. He had sorrow. He had death threats. He had exuberant joy of people that saw miracles. He had a crowd you couldn't imagine. Interruptions. Don't you just love those? Don't you just love an interruption? Like a cell phone and everyone's ashamed of that ringtone. People are like, what? You keep that ringtone on your phone? And it buzzes in church. Everyone's checking their phone, aren't they? <laughs> Sometimes we're more accustomed to these interruptions. How do we adjust to an interruption? That'll say a lot about you right there. I used to have a church with five services and I had a NASA gentleman there. He had a couple earned doctorates from NASA. And I would ask rhetorical questions in messages about distances and things. And I stopped because he would answer me. <laughs> I was afraid to ask a question for like five years. One time I had talked about trajectory of the you know system. It was just way out there question. And boom, he nailed that. He had a pocket protected as double plastic. You know, he had the thing going on right there. So I was a little edgy about asking questions. I feel better today about asking a rhetorical question in church. I'm getting over that, my support group. But you, but you think about interruptions in life. What about a church looking for a shepherd? I'm blessed to be a part of overseeing 50 friends' churches on a committee. I love them. Someone's always looking for a shepherd. I want to say pastor, but I can't because I feel like the ministry is the calling to be a shepherd of the sheep of Jesus Christ. It's not a professionalism. It's a, it's a holy duty. I even have this moniker now. I'll probably put Shep on the bottom of this. It's a nickname. Shep is what they say to me. You smell like the sheep. It's messy. I have five messages in two days not so long ago and and then a call rang from states away. I recognized him. I took the call. Interruption extraordinaire. He knew where I was. He said, I'm sending somebody to you. I said, now? He said, I am. I'm sending him to you. He is just in need. I'm like, I don't have time. He said, well, he'll be there anyway. And the phone went down. Didn't hang up. You don't hang up on a cell phone anymore. You just disappear. And then he walked with his buddy. Top graduate in master's program, almost five state region honor in his academic pursuits. Done very well for himself, won a scholarship, put it all into a mission trip, came on to an internship. That thing tanked so badly. Didn't work out, broken, never really been in the church. Family came from a background that's a smidge occultic. Went to school and periphery on the church, but loved God, but light on the church. And he's sitting through church like he just can't wait for the message to get over, like kind of like you are. Just kidding. A couple of you are. And then he, But he came back there where I'm doing that work before you give your message. Have you ever interrupted your pastor before he preached? Have you ever done that? Wow, I'm telling you. We act like these things need to be cried over again. If they aren't ready a week before you give them, that much won't help. That's just how I see about it. But he walked back there and I had the table mess full of these things. He's pouring out his life to me. And I felt like, I said, are you hungry? He said, yeah, I haven't eaten well in days. I 
I said, where are you at financially? Hmm. You don't want to know. I said, where are you going to stay tonight? He said, I have no idea. So where are you headed? Where's plan B? I don't have a plan B, he said. <laughs> and I said, could you sit through a worship service? Not trying to hook him in. That's not how we Quakers roll. You know, <laughs> you sit through and we'll bless you. <laughs> it was just time to go. And he sat through that service and he got in his car and he started back for that way distant land in the West. And I got him on the phone and, and I begged him to come back. I said, how much funding do you have? He said, I have enough to make it to St. Louis and sleep in my car, and God will figure the rest out. I said, get yourself back here. How far are you away? He said, I'm 10 miles to the west of you. And I said, I'm just going to say something to you. In this big crowd I served tonight, I'm sorry, I lost you. I need you back, buddy. Get back here. He came back. We fed him. All the rest is the detail for the story of today. But uh, he's still with us. He's going on a mission trip. Uh, he poured his life out with seven huge needs to me after church finances and housing. I didn't have any housing, anything like that. Car, the whole deal. And I said, let's just pray. He said, before you pray, can I say something? He said, I don't trust the church of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian and I don't trust pastors. I said, friend, we're going to be close. We're going to be thick because you know what? I appreciate clarity. <laughs> I love clarity and I need that kind of clarity. How about this? Don't pay attention to one thing I say to you. Don't act like you need to trust me at all. But I'll sit down and make a binding agreement with you. Your word and my word and we'll make a sentence out of our word. I call that an agreement. And I'll keep every one of my agreements with you. And if I don't, I'll send you back to where you need to go. And we will cover your way. And this whole team here today has been a blessing to that gentleman. I said, what happened with the scholarship you got? He said, I, I put it all into the mission trip. I said, 100% of the money you were given at graduation, where I was, he said, because God called me to. And I'm just here today to do that. I want you to know he's on his way to Greece. And he's going to work with the immigrants who are Muslim and witness Christ to them. And wonderful things have happened in his life. Interruption. To me it was, but it wasn't to God. When you think about the interruptions that you get with someone who might come through your doors at Brown's Chapel, if you're open to everybody. I've shifted my worldview about a year ago. When these needs come, I was never a youth pastor. I prayed to God no one would ever call me to be a youth pastor. I was youthful and I loved the Lord and I had a call at 14, but I prayed that God would never call me to be a youth pastor because I grew up working. I grew up a little bit serious. I grew up a little bit focused and fun was a half day off every three or four days like that. I didn't have that in me. I can't sleep on the floor like that and do those all. But I'll tell you, I've been working with some youth at the church. Like, wow, I was once a youth, but I'm not. Working with the gentleman, I thought I was making no dents in his life. He is such a young fella. He sent me a text message and said, you got to call me. And I, I listened for an hour. I know you think that's hard to believe. <laughs> I listened for the better part of an hour to this youngster. Have an adult problem. It was a very adult problem. And my iPhone's cracked because I dropped it. I want to read you what I got. I was in my library last night, late, and uh, 
It's about the time John Hunt calls me. <laughs> Sometime after 10.30 before 1 a.m., we have this agreement. <laughs> the horses are baying in the stall and the dogs have stopped biting them and that. And, and then uh, my phone goes off and I thought for sure it was Dr. Hunt because we had we were going to chat. Weeks and weeks and weeks working with this young man. Interruptions, right? Can't meet the need anyway. Don't have the resources to meet the need. Don't even know what the need is, but I've been pouring into his life and journeying with him. I'll work with you on this one. Please work with me. I want to let you know that you and your helping hands, that mean a lot to me. I'm going through a lot and I'm greatly grateful and have good people like you and your team in my life. And thank you so much. It means the world to me, even though you have lots on your plate, that you still make me a priority. I love you. Wow. We don't do this job for pay, folks. We do it for stuff like that. We love freshmen going into high school with real-life problems like that. Now, I want to wrap this up with asking you some questions. What did Jesus know that caused him to do what he did? That God can do anything. My worldview changed. And I'm so glad my team's here. I got to confess something to them. When, when this gentleman came in with this epic problem, I turned around and thought, God, I'm one message into five in two days and I have no time for this guy. Have a team around you because I have a godly team and they were helpful to that. I turned around and I said, sound like I'm a Messianic Jew. God, I call this place Jehovah Jireh. Now work with me for a second. I've been to Israel. I've taught classes all over Israel. God, I call this place Jehovah Jireh. I have no idea how to meet this gentleman's needs. I don't even know what they are yet. I don't think he's full disclosure with me. But if I don't do something, he's gone and his life is in trouble. And I was he was told by his professor I was the only safe place in his life in this whole area. And I bowed. Now, I didn't pray to any of his needs. I didn't know what they were, but let me tell you what Jehovah Jireh is. Abraham, Avrahim, you know, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Underneath that golden dome is a massive rock. And you know the backstory. Abraham, the covenant he made with God, it had to go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Without Isaac, the covenant broke. And God called on Abraham to sacrifice his only, very much like God. And he took his son all the way there. And he was ready for the sacrifice and he lifted up that flint knife to end the life of his son and God Almighty stopped that big right hand from making that move. And guess what? Jehovah Jireh. God provided. And Abraham, Avraham, he walked away and said, all this land is now a place where God provides. Everything stoned, earth, acreage, God is the great provider of everyone's need and we can call people to a God that can meet their need. This young man started calling me. I got boots older than this fella. My dog is older than this little gentleman that calls me. He's gimping around thanks to Dr. Hunt. I had no clue. I don't even know the verbiage to deal with culture today. And Pardon me about that, but I can love. And as he poured himself out to me, I was doing my best and I said, what could we do to kind of work things out with you and your friends? He said, we could get on longboards. Longboards. 
I haven't been on a skateboard since Reagan was in office. A long board, a long board. So we have a budget of Franklin. That's a small talk for a hundred. He can go buy two long boards. He said, well, the new ones are like a buck 20. I said, I'm frugal. Buying two on Facebook Marketplace for a hundred bucks. And I said, plus, we don't want to look like they're new. We're already going to fall. We need some rash on them so we look like we know what we're doing. <laughs> he said, you can longboard with me on the Pincy Trail. Folks, get your soul ready because I'm going to be on there with the helmet. <laughs> and I said, so what are we going to do so we can longboard on the Pincy Trail? So I'm going to wear a helmet to protect what's left of this up here. And we're going to start longboarding on a regular basis. Why? Jehovah Jireh. Let me make this application for Brown's Chapel. Every empty pew place in this sanctuary belongs to God Almighty. Don't count who's here. Count how much space you have and wait till God fills it. Every stall out there that doesn't have a vehicle in it, count it as God Almighty, not empty. He can fill this place and meet every need. In the crowd here today, you have gifts, skills, and talents, and potential that could absolutely turn Hancock County around again and again. My belief, you are one of the congregations significantly and strategically placed to blossom and grow as we are in the third fastest growing county in the state of Indiana out of 92, Jehovah Jireh. That's where we're at. We don't have to know the need. We don't even have to know who's in the crowd. We don't have to know what, we don't have to look in the basket and say, five, can you imagine the disciples? Five and two. Can't do. <laughs> we don't even have to look in the basket. We just have to look to Christ. We don't even have to count the numbers out there. We just have to say, God will provide for us. Miracle after miracle after miracle will happen in your life when you just simply call people to Christ and get out of the way. We've complicated it, haven't we? Will you say this with me? And I'll say it first. God will provide. God will provide. Now, if you believe that, I ask you to pray that. Got a pastoral candidate coming in. Not easy. I wasn't asked to do this, by the way. Not easy to candidate. God will provide, right? And the future will be taken care of. And God will continue to grow you and bless you. <laughs> Let's not be the disciples that turn them away. Let's be the disciple that points them to that Christ. So we can say together, God will provide. Let's bow our heads. God Almighty, we look up to you and not around. And the crowds around us are, are what they are. They're daily, they're regular, they're churchy, they're unchurched. They're the marketplace on the mountaintop in the valley. We run into people and sometimes like you, we turn around because we're grieving. Your son was grieving in the story and it, and it looked like he wanted a moment alone and he didn't get it. And all of us can say we know what that's like and we need you to help us turn back around to the crowd for we are the church of Jesus Christ and you will provide what they need and what we need. We ask that you would bless us with the mindset of Abraham that Jehovah Jireh, whatever it is, God, you're going to take care of it. That was not your name, Lord. 
Abraham did not call you that. He called the place where you met all the needs, the greatest of his life. He called you the great provider. We call you the same today, oh God. You will provide. And thank you for your watch care. Continue to anoint and bless and guide the leadership of Brown's Chapel. May you lead them in mighty and powerful ways. And as they look back to where we are at this station, they can say God provided mightily. God did what no one else can do. And God is still doing what no one else can do. And we pause to say, just like the five loaves and the two fish, God, you can do anything. We don't have that much to offer, but you have everything to give. And you already showed that in giving your son, Jesus Christ. Speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. May this message ripple out even to myself, God, reflecting back into my life and our lives and help us to be the church of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the sound and in the powerful and glorious name of the giver of that little boy's lunch, Jesus Christ. Amen.